Let's turn in our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 9. As we continue our journey through the book of Nehemiah together, the walls of Jerusalem have now been rebuilt, and we're told that it was in the seventh month now that all of the children of Israel came together from the surrounding cities and gathered there into the city of Jerusalem uh, by the water gate in front of it, and that God began by a sovereign move of his spirit, it seems, just to spring forth a a real spiritual revival among the people. Uh, We're told that the people, as they assemble together in this seventh month, which, as we said last time, remember, the seventh month is a very unique month in the religious calendar of the Jewish people. It's uh, the month that they celebrate the Feast of Trumpets, as well as the Day of Atonement, that high holy day where they seek God by applying the blood of the covenant or the blood of atonement there upon uh, the mercy seat to make atonement for the sins of the nation. They would do that on the 10th day of the seventh month, and then also the Feast of Tabernacles. One of the three mandatory feasts that was required to be observed happened during that seventh month as well. So a very unique month, a very uh, focused month on the things of God, that it seems there's just this stirring in the hearts of God's people, The Spirit of God just begins to move that they tell Ezra, we saw in chapter 8, to to bring out the book of the law of Moses. And as Ezra brought out the word of God and just began to read to the people just huge portions of the scripture, it says that all the people were just attentive. They were hungry. They wanted to learn the scriptures. They wanted to know what God's word had to say. They realized that this was something they needed was a return to the Word of God, even as they rebuilt the physical walls, they wanted to to sort of rebuild their spiritual lives, and there was this return to the Lord, and it was rooted in a return to the Word of God, to the value of God's Word and the importance of its place in God's people's lives, and their ears were attentive, they wanted to hear, and Ezra, it says, together with a group of spiritual leaders, just began reading God's Word, literally for hours and hours upon end, and the people, the Levites, his helpers would go out and they would further explain the scriptures and were helping to disciple the people and giving them the sense of what the passages meant, helping them to understand the meanings and how to relate to them, how they were to take these things and what they meant and live them out in their own lives. And as the people were hearing, they were responding to the word of God. They celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles in a way like they had never celebrated it literally in a long period of time, it says, since literally all the way back to the days of Joshua. And as they now come to the end of the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days, chapter 9 now records for us, again, further uh, this work of God's Spirit going on in his people's lives. And we see now it transitions from a giving of their attention to the Word of God to a responsiveness to the Word of God, which brings forth a time of prayer, a time of responding to God and confession of sin and worship and, and seeking God. And again, this is another thing that characterizes true revival. Uh, There's a renewal of the importance of God's Word in His people's lives. People become interested in the Scripture again. They want to know what God's Word says. And there's also just a a renewing of a desire for prayer. People want to seek God. 
Uh, They're not being forced or obligated to pray. There's a genuine longing to want to cry out to God, to seek the Lord in prayer. And chapter 9 records for us the prayer of the people, their response and confession of sin and seeking God in regards to their current situation. So just a a beautiful thing we see taking place. It tells us in chapter 9, verse 1, that it was on the 24th day of this month that the children of Israel were assembled, it says, verse 1, with fasting in sackcloth and with dust on their heads. So we can see that what was going on inside of them internally was affecting their behavior. Uh, Their internal condition was causing them to act and behave in certain ways responsively. So their actions were the fruit of, of what was truly going on in their heart condition. We're told here they came together with fasting, that is, they were exercising the discipline of uh, refraining from food in order to be able to ponder about the things of God and seek God instead. The idea is that the things of God were so important to them, it was more important than their necessary food. Oftentimes we see fasting and prayer tied together in the Word of God, so they're saying we care so much about seeking God, it's even more important than a meal or than our necessary daily food, so they're fasting. We're also told in an act of sort of humbling themselves that they were in sackcloth. This was like a burlap sack type material that was very uncomfortable, like a camel's hair, scratchy and itchy, and at times they would put sackcloth upon themselves to sort of afflict themselves. It certainly made them very uncomfortable, and in a sense they're indicating here by their actions that uh, doing what is right in the sight of God is more important than even our own personal comfort. We're told as well that they were even putting dust upon their heads. Again, just another way of kind of expressively humbling themselves, throwing dust upon themselves. And again, keep in mind, these were outward ways of humbling themselves. Uh, They're humbling themselves in the sight of the Lord and not afraid to humble themselves even publicly in front of one another because they care more about seeking God and doing what's right in his sight than their own personal image or things of that sort. And verse 2 says, And then those of the Israelite lineage, they then separated themselves from all the foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and iniquities of their fathers. So now we see them moving into a uh, sort of response of, of separating themselves from that which perhaps they should not be entangled within. They they realized they needed to live a life of separation if they were going to seek God the way that they should. And so it says here they separated themselves from the foreigners. Now we're going to see when we get into some of the later chapters that part of this was uh, intermarrying with people in unequally yoked spiritual marriages that they were not supposed to be involved in. So it could be some reference to that. Uh, as well as maybe just relationships and affinities that they were having with unbelieving people who were not of the people of God. And so they realized we need to, to to some degree, separate ourselves from our entanglement in the things of the world. And so they realized, you know, if we're going to seek God, we have to pull back and create some level of separation. And again, whenever we're going to become more serious about the Lord, sometimes a degree of separation is necessary. We have to be willing to separate ourselves from worldly influences or things maybe we shouldn't be involved in to be more dedicated to God and putting our attention upon him more to a greater degree. We're going to kind of lay aside those things, as Hebrews says. We, we have to lay aside every weight 
and the sins which so easily ensnare us so that we can be, he says, looking unto Jesus. And here, separation was a part of their spiritual revival and renewal process that's happening, as well as, notice, confession. It says here in verse 2 that they stood up, again, this is publicly, they stood up and they were confessing their sins as well as the iniquities of their forefathers. So we see the confession of sin. And again, this is something that always marks a time of, I think, spiritual renewal in the lives of God's people. Is no longer is there justification for any of our wrongdoing, no longer is there making excuses for why something is acceptable, even though the Word of God says it's not. Uh, instead, there's a conviction of sin. God's Word reveals like a light things in our lives, and it shows us where our life is not in alignment with the truth of God's will. It, it reveals to us wrong attitudes, maybe wrong behaviors or conduct that we're involved in, and the Word of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, reveals to us areas where we are not in right relationship with the Lord. And so here it says, as the people are experiencing conviction, they begin confessing their sins. And again, the word confession, remember, just means to acknowledge, to say the same thing in agreement. So that's the idea of confession. Homologeo is the Greek word in the New Testament used for it. it. It literally means just to acknowledge and say the same thing that God says about something. God, what you say is right. doesn't matter what anyone else says about it or even what I'm trying to think about it. What you say is right, and I humbly submit to that, and I acknowledge this is wrong because you say it's wrong. This is not appropriate because you say it's not appropriate. And, and we just yield ourselves to the authority of what God says and agree with God. We take ownership for our error. We just openly admit that what we know we have been doing is wrong, whatever that may be. And this is an important thing, that genuine repentance begins with sincere confession. Again, repentance is change, but it begins with sincere confession, openly acknowledging and taking ownership of what the Holy Spirit has shown us we're doing wrong. And so often that comes through the Word of God. Again, chapter 8 was a chapter all about a lot of exposure to the Scripture. Again, remember, they assembled and they were reading the Scripture passages for hours and hours upon end. So as they're hearing God's Word, that's what brings conviction of sin, and that's what prompts them to start now confessing their sins, the things that they were doing that were displeasing God in thought, in word and in deed. So the people now making confession of sin, verse 3 says, and they stood up in their place and they read again, notice, from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day. So again, we see them going back to reading the word of God, once again exposing themselves to the scriptures. Now it says that they did it this time here for one-fourth of the day. Now, if we want to say an average day maybe is 12 hours, if we're not factoring in the evening or sleeping time, even if we were to say an average day were 12 hours, referring to the daytime hours when we kind of function, uh, one-fourth of a 12-hour span would be three hours. So this is still a huge portion of time dedicated to the reading of the Word of God. When we talk about long meetings, I mean, a three-hour long meeting here of just reading 
the scripture, hearing it maybe even explained once again as well. I mean, we, 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 to some degree, know very little of this, certainly even in our American culture. And more than that, uh, if we were to be very honest with all of ourselves in this current generation where we just have such a microwave mentality, drive-through, pick-up things quickly, uh, just you know, our attention span is so diminished in some ways because of all of the access and inundation with technology and just all these little things that we're, we're so used to brevity and shortness. I mean, you, you, you'll, you'll watch a video or something. It has to be a, a three-minute or less video because beyond three minutes, that's just that's too long. People don't have attention span. And sadly, all of that is really having, I personally believe in this generation, a huge impact as well upon just people's attention span, even spiritually. It's kind of sad. And uh, to some degree, a lot of God's people really wrestle. And again, not saying that I'm advocating three-hour-long Bible studies, but the, the point being that what an amazing thing to see here, that these people had no problem for three hours long giving themselves to reading the Word of God, hearing it read, maybe being explained and taught, and that they wanted this. They had a spiritual appetite for it. They had an attention span for it, a desire. You you could tell something's happening by the power of the Holy Spirit when that's stirring in the hearts of God's people, uh, that, that they just are so hungry for God, so longing to hear from God that for three hours straight, uh, they're not looking for just, you know, keep it short, keep it quick, get us in, get us out, but instead giving their attention as for one-fourth of the day, they're reading from the book of the law of the Lord. And then notice verse 3, he goes on to say, and then for another fourth of the day, so for another three hours afterwards, they hear the scripture for three hours, and then for another three hours, they then spent responding to the word of God. Perhaps it seems in this very same meeting, so maybe a six-hour-long meeting, uh, for the next three hours, it says they confessed. That is, again, they're acknowledging, God, what you say is true. They're confessing their sins, no doubt, again, in response to hearing the word of God. Uh, it, it, they're making confession for their wrongdoing. And it says, and they also worshiped the Lord their God. Again, just a worshipful response. I like this. They hear the word of God. And then it's not, okay, well, let's just do one quick closing song to kind of wrap it up and get out of here. They, they waited upon the Lord. And for three hours after hearing the word of God, they're just responsively confessing sin, praying, worshiping, singing, just worshiping responsively to the scripture. And that's one of the reasons why we change the pattern of what we do here at our church on Wednesday nights, uh, you know, a number of years back to kind of do the majority of our worship just in a different way than Sunday morning where we do it responsively after the Bible study. I, I wish it could be longer even than what it is sometimes, just there's something really neat about sometimes hearing the Word of God and what God's saying and what His Holy Spirit's ministering to us and then just kind of waiting in the Lord's presence and just praying and worshiping and maybe acknowledging things to God that we need to or confessing sin and, and worshiping the Lord in response to what he spoke to us through the word of God as his Holy Spirit was ministering. So what a beautiful thing happening here among the people. And verse 4 says, Then Jeshua and Bonnie and Cadmiel 
and Shabaniah and Bunny and Sherebiah and Bani and Chenaniah stood, it says, on the stairs, and the Levites, they cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. So it seems there was sort of different Levites and spiritual leaders taking turns, leading out in prayer, crying out to the Lord from sort of the front where the crowd of God's people was assembled together in this time of worship towards him. And and at times one, then the next person with a loud voice, they're crying out public prayers before the Lord, which is probably part of why we get what we do in the remainder of chapter 9 now, which is a prayer that was being prayed publicly. says verse 5, And the Levites... All those names there, once again, we won't struggle through them, but the Levites, those guys, verse 5, they said, stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. I love that exhortation. They now call the people, rise up, stand up before the Lord. He is worthy of standing at attention. Again, we've talked about this before, like when you stand up for an important person, maybe when they come into the room, when a, a judge comes into a courtroom, we you know, all rise and everyone just acknowledging the importance of their position and just kind of showing a little bit of reverence and respect, standing up. And, and so here, just you know, stand up, he says, and bless the Lord. Give honor to him forever and ever, just to begin to engage in really what is going to be God's people's eternal occupation forever and ever and ever and ever. We're going to worship the Lord forever and ever and ever. So uh, we're wise to begin practicing now on this side of the veil. Uh, prior to entering into the eternal dimension, we, we should get used to standing up and blessing the Lord and giving our praise to him through song and prayer and lifting worship to him because that's what we'll be very occupied doing for all of eternity forever and ever when we're in his presence. So the people are called, and now the prayer begins here in the middle of verse 5, and it runs through the remainder of the chapter. And many believe this is actually the longest prayer, if not one of the longest prayers in the Bible. We have throughout the scriptures a couple different occasions in Old and New Testament where the Holy Spirit chooses to actually record the words of a prayer that were uttered. Some were personal prayers, some were public prayers together with groups of people, but I think it's prudent when we come to these prayers that no doubt we take note of just kind of some certain things. They're good to sometimes maybe meditate upon if we're looking to see what genuine Prayer should be like Holy Spirit-inspired prayer. Uh, We want to pray in accordance with the will of God. We want to pray effective prayers, and we want to pray in the Holy Spirit. The Bible does speak about that. Jude speaks about keeping ourselves in the love of God and praying in the Holy Spirit. And we want to be praying in the Holy Spirit. That is being led by the Spirit of God. Romans 8 says that we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit helps us. In other words, one of the ministries of the Spirit, it says, is to help us in our weaknesses because we don't always know what to pray for or how to pray. But if we truly are submissive and yielded and just don't maybe ramble with our words or just start running down a path, just saying things, filling up, kind of empty space because we're almost like we can do sometimes when we communicate. We we talk about sometimes people struggle with nervous talk. It's like when they begin to talk, they just get rambling or they don't know how to 
kind of take a pause for a minute or, or they can't handle silence. And sometimes people just talk in nervousness when they're with groups or with others. And sometimes I think we can almost do that in prayer. We're almost afraid to kind of wait, maybe listen, think about what we should actually be praying because the Holy Spirit's putting something on our mind to pray or giving us a thought or helping us direct our words. And I think it's good to grow in this area, that we learn to let our prayers be directed by the Holy Spirit, that we pray in accordance as he's directing us to. And I bring that up to say that when we look at these prayers in the Bible, we know these are Holy Spirit-inspired prayers because the Holy Spirit inspired and recorded the Word of God. And we know there are a lot more prayers that have been prayed throughout the ages of God's people, and they're not all recorded in the Bible, but some made it. God chose to incorporate some of the prayers in Scripture, and so apparently God felt these were important prayers. So uh, as we're seeking to learn, good passages sometimes to familiarize ourselves with, take note of, and, and seek to pray in the same manner of some of the things that we see here. And you're going to notice as we go through this that a lot of it's them rehearsing their history spiritually. And apparently the one praying this prayer uh, knew their Bible well because they were able to rehearse the history of Israel to a great extent. We'll see it really focuses on the faithfulness of God, the goodness of God, the kindness of God, his provision, protection, his help, despite the unfaithfulness of God's people and how we are rebellious and the God's children were so often stubborn and stiff-necked, and yet God kept being so merciful, so patient, despite their failure after failure and repeated rebellious acts, and yet God would still keep being so patient and so kind. And you'll, you'll kind of see that theme. And I think this prayer certainly lifts off the page the reminder to us of two things. That is the the weakness of man, the sinfulness of man, the stubbornness and rebelliousness of man, number one, and number two, the faithfulness of God, the kindness of God, the patience and mercy and goodness of God in tremendous contrast despite what we're like as human beings. And, and, and we see that so clearly contrasted in this. So notice the prayer begins in verse 5 with worship, just giving honor to God. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all, and the host of heaven worships you. So the opening statements of this prayer, no requests, not really even asking for God to do anything specific. It was just worshipful praise, adoration giving honor to God, speaking things forth about God and to God that would just bring glory to him, that would give exaltation to how great he was. He says, blessed be your glorious name. You're exalted above all things. You alone, no one is like you, he says, Lord. There's no one like you. You alone are the Lord. And, and he speaks of God's power and his power displayed in creation. 
how he had made the heaven and the heaven of heavens and all the angelic hosts and the earth and everything on the earth, the seas, the land, that God is creator. He's the owner of all things. He's the one who gave life to all things and by his power spoke things into existence, this great and awesome God. And he says, God, you didn't just by your power create all things. He says, God, you keep all things held together. You're the God who preserves all things. If it weren't for you, God, everything would just erupt and fall apart. All the systems that are operating in creation and nature and even in humanity and everything, he says, you preserve them all. If it weren't for the preserving power of God, everything would just disintegrate, erupt, fall apart. And yet God didn't just create things and step away from them. He's not an aloof creator. He is a kind, personal, powerful God, but yet totally involved in every aspect of his creation, preserving things, keeping things so that they function the way that they're supposed to. Again, what an amazing thing, just the dependability of God. The Bible says in the New Testament, in him, in the Lord Jesus, who also was a key agent in creation with his father in him it says all things consist or hold together the lord's holding everything together it's encouraging to know that he's a god of preservation and he can preserve things in our lives that we worry about maybe falling apart certainly if he's taking care of all of creation and the heavens and the earth and everything that's within them. He says in the host of heaven worships you that is the host of heaven referring to all the angelic spirits worshiping God, giving honor to him. He then, verse 7, as I said, begins now this reflection. And it's a reflection of the history of the nation of Israel. And shows you, again, that he really, really knew the record of Scripture because he goes all the way back, starts with creation and God being creator. Now he starts tracking from the time of Abraham, the founding father of the Jewish nation and God's chosen people, Israel. He says, verse 7, You are the Lord God who chose Abraham, brought him out of Ur of the Chaldees, and gave him the name Abraham. Again, a testimony of God's grace. Abram was in Ur of the Chaldees. The idea he was a, a complete, we might say, pagan. He was worshiping other gods, foreign deities. He didn't know the one true and living God, Yahweh. He was a, a person, really, who was worshiping predominantly, we believe, the moon god where he was at. And he was someone who, by the grace of God, for whatever reason, God chose him. Sovereignly, God chose to be kind and gracious to Abraham, broke into his life, revealed himself to Abraham, selected him to be the man through which he would work and put a calling upon his life to give birth to the Jewish people, God's chosen nation, to ultimately become the nation of Israel through which he might bring forth all of his works and his promises and, of course, ultimately bring forth the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, through the line of this chosen people, the Jews, the nation of Israel. So a reminder of God's great grace. He gave him the name Abraham, changed his name, and you found his heart faithful before you. And Abraham wasn't perfect. Certainly he had his fair share of failures, but God saw his faith, the faith that he believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And God saw that as faithfulness, that he was willing to keep believing, even though he failed practically. 
that his faith remained in the Lord and made a covenant with him. God made a covenant with Abraham to give him the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, the Girgashites, to give it to his descendants, and you have performed your words, for you are righteous. So God made a covenant promise to Abraham, to you and your descendants I give this land, and he promised to give to Abraham the land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land that he did nothing to earn or work for, but God wanted to give it to him as a choice to bless him, to establish the nation of Israel in. And he says, and God, you promised to give him the land and you performed your words. You gave him the land. You allowed him to come in and to inherit it. Verse nine, and you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. So now we fast forward to the time beyond uh, the days of Joseph, remember, and his brothers when the famine came upon the land and uh, the children of Israel had ended up in Egypt because Joseph Their brother had brought them there, and then a new pharaoh arose who didn't know Joseph and wasn't favorably disposed, and then the Jewish people became slaves in the land of Egypt in bondage and hardship, and they were living under the harshness of taskmasters forcing them to be slaves as they were there in Egypt in slavery. And and, and he says, God, you saw their affliction. You saw them in that slavery, in that misery, and you heard their cry by the Red Sea. God heard the cry of those struggling, and he answered in compassion. In verse 10, you showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, that is, all the mighty plagues that God brought to bring out his people and to humble Pharaoh who would not let them go, against all his servants and the peoples of his land. For you knew that they acted proudly against them, so you made a name for yourself as it is this day. Again, God brought these plagues to humble Pharaoh, who was being stubborn and resistant, and to show his great power, the mighty power of these miraculous plagues. God would bring plagues, and then he'd remove plagues. And God has the power to do both because he's an almighty God. And he says, you did this to make a name for yourself. Because remember, God kept saying that Pharaoh may know that I am the Lord. And sometimes God displays his power in such ways that people may know who he is. Sometimes great displays of God's power are one of the ways that God displays his person. The people would come to know who God is because they need to know him in a personal way and see that he's real Verse 11, and you divided the sea before them. So they went through in the midst of the sea on dry land and their persecutors you threw into the deep, a stone into the mighty water. So as they came to the Red Sea and they were stuck, remember the Egyptians were behind them, chasing them. There were obstacles on both sides, mountainous ranges, and then the Red Sea in front of them. And God made a way where there had never been a way before. They were stuck. It looked like things were over and they were kind of boxed in and it seemed absolutely impossible. There were no proper directions to turn, like they were going to be stuck and destroyed. And yet God parted the Red Sea miraculously. And they didn't just go through the Red Sea, but they went through on dry land. That is, that mucky underneath of the sea became solid footing for the children of Israel to travel through and get over to the other side. And then as soon as they got out the other side, God brought the waters back and destroyed their enemies. So God delivered them out of Egypt and and across the Red Sea. God parted the sea miraculously by his mighty power. This is the God that he is. He can make a way where there is no way. 
And sometimes we find ourselves like that. We feel like we're kind of stuck in a situation where thinking there's just no direction to turn. Every direction doesn't work. What's going to happen? I'm going to be destroyed. There's, and then all of a sudden, God kind of lets us see that he put us in that spot that he might display his mighty power. And then the Lord works in some amazing, powerful way. And he makes a way where there had never been a way before. And he does something astonishing, and we see his great power. And here God did that for them and allowed their enemies to be destroyed so they couldn't harm them any longer. Verse 12, moreover, you led them day by day with a cloudy pillar. Remember the pillar of cloud uh, by day uh, that they had to keep them from the, the brunt of the sun in the desert wandering, and a pillar of fire by night. The fire kept them warm and allowed them to have direction as they were traveling at night to give them light on the road which way they should travel, he says, verse 12. Again, I love the way that language reads, as God was directing his people with the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Remember, whenever it moved, they would move. Whenever it stopped, they would stop. And that was the way they were just, they were following the presence of the Lord. So sometimes it it, it stopped and it settled somewhere for days and days on end, and they weren't to move until God moved. Other times, every day, it would move a different direction or move a little further. Their responsibility was just to stay following the presence of the Lord. And it was a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, but this is how God was directing them. Just follow the cloud. Wherever the cloud goes, that's where God's going, follow the cloud. And he says it was to give them light on the road in which they should travel. And how wonderful that God does this, that God wants to direct our lives if we're willing to let him be the one to give us guidance. He wants to give us light on our road so that we know which way we should travel. Maybe you're thinking, I don't know what to do. I don't know which way to go. I just, I feel like I'm, I'm kind of in the dark. Well, God wants to give you light. He wants to give you light on the road that you're traveling, and he wants you to know which way you should travel, and he wants to direct your steps. Seek the Lord. He's not a God of partiality. He led these people and he will lead you today as well. He'll give you light on the road in which you should travel and make it evident where you're supposed to go and when you're supposed to take those steps in what direction that you are. Verse 13, he says, And you also came down on Mount Sinai, spoke with them from heaven, gave them just ordinances and true laws and good statutes and commandments. So speaking of God giving the commandments to Moses there with great power as he spoke, as Moses was up on Mount Sinai, you made known, verse 14, to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them your precepts and your statutes and your laws by the hand of Moses, your servant. In verse 15, and you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought them water out of the rock for their thirst and told them to go in and possess the land which you had sworn to give to them. So as they were wandering throughout the wilderness, Again, God was taking care of them in miraculous ways. He refers to here how God brought water out of the rock for their thirst. Now, water doesn't come out of rocks unless God decides it's going to, because God can do what's absolutely impossible. And God broke open the rock and brought forth water to satisfy the need of his people. We're told there as well, God gave them bread from heaven for their hunger. Remember the manna that came down miraculously every single day. They couldn't even store it from day to day. 
every day they had to believe that God would provide it again the next day, take just what they needed, and in faith they had to depend upon the Lord to supply the manna the next morning again when they got up, and it would be out there, and they would go out and gather in enough that they needed. And every day, God kept bringing bread from heaven, the daily bread that they needed to sustain them. So again, meeting their needs, their hunger, their thirst. How wonderful God's a God of provision. That God can do whatever is necessary to provide, whether it's sending miraculous bread from heaven in some way, whether it's breaking open a rock to satisfy some thirst or need that we have. God is not limited. God has so many ways through which he may provide for us. He provided literally for two million people in the wilderness like this. This wasn't even just for a a family of two or three. This was two million people. And yet God was doing these incredible things miraculously in his provision to take care of his people that he loved. Now, Look at all the wonderful things God's doing, but yet, verse 16, but, you would think they would be so grateful to God, but so much like we can be at times, but they and our fathers acted proudly. They hardened their necks. They did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey, and they were not mindful of your wonders. That is that they chose to ignore the things that God had been doing, that you did among them. But they hardened their necks, and in their rebellion, they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. Remember, people started complaining, and they appointed a leader. Let's just go back to Egypt. It was so much better in Egypt. And rather than appreciating all that God had done, they were complaining about the few things that weren't the way that they wanted them to be in their lives. And were were kind of like selfish, spoiled little brats beginning to become disgruntled, as we all kind of sadly can sometimes, and they started to get proud, hardened their necks. That is just stubbornness, just stiffening their neck against God, not letting God direct them. Verse 17 says they refused to obey, not that they didn't know how to. They they refused to. They made a, a rebellious choice, refusing to obey God and choosing to harden their necks instead. He says, verse 17 But, and again, this is God's amazing kindness, mercy, and grace, but you are God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. Again, as uh, the individuals praying here, this is just the contrast thing again here. Here the people act in this way. You would think God would say, now you rotten, rebellious, ungrateful children, I am done with you, and and, and just come down on them with that same great power and destroy them or punish them. But look what he says, "But, but you are a God ready to pardon, ready to forgive. Now, it would be one thing if God was just willing to pardon. That would be shocking. Thank goodness that, God, you are willing to pardon and forgive us when we behave wrongly or stubborn and rebellious and proud. But he says God's not just willing to. He's anxious to. He's ready to pardon. He always stands prepared and ready to forgive anyone. The only reason why we don't experience God's forgiveness and pardon at times is when we're too rebellious to receive it or too proud to receive it. That's the only thing that holds it back. God is always waiting, prepared. He's always ready to anxiously forgive. That's the nature of God. And why? Because he's gracious. 
He's merciful in nature. He's a God slow to anger. He's very slow in becoming angry. He's abundant in kindness, and he doesn't forsake us even as he didn't forsake them. Amazing to consider how great God is in light of sometimes how badly behaved we can be as people. And again, this history of Israel is a testimony of these realities. Verse 18, it says, Even when they made a golden calf for themselves, remember that episode? And said, this is your God that brought you out of Egypt. Remember, Aaron got caught up in that. And they worked great provocations, that is, they provoked God's anger by their horrific and dishonorable actions. Yet in your manifold mercies, you did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not depart from them by day to lead them on the road, nor the pillar of fire by night to show them light in the way that they should go. So he says, verse 18, even when, the idea is that those are two key words there, verse 18, even when the golden calf thing happened, the idea is, is even that, even that wasn't something that pushed you too far that you just gave up on your people or just destroyed them or turned away or forsook them or said, you know what, that's it, I'm done. Try for a few days getting yourself around this wilderness. I'm not leading you anymore. I'm taking my pillar of cloud and pillar of fire and and, and try making it on your own without me for a few days or a week or two. He says, even then, even when they did that, still you didn't forsake them. You still kept showing them the way that they should go, being kind despite their rebellion, their disrespect and defiance, just great mercy that God has, his enduring patience. He says, verse 20, it was even during this time, you gave your good spirit. I like that. Good description of God's spirit, his good spirit. God's spirit doesn't do anything weird or bizarre. It's a, God's good. And so his spirit and his ministry, the ministry of the spirit is always a good thing. You gave them your good spirit to instruct them. And did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. That is, God kept being good to them. By his spirit, he kept showing goodness to them and his kindness to them, not withholding. Verse 21, 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing and their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. Remember, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because uh, they had chosen not to enter into the land in unbelief when the spies went in and after 40 days they came back and gave a bad report and in unbelief they did not enter into the promised land as God called them to so the consequence was God let them wander for 40 years until that whole generation died off but notice even as they wandered for 40 years four decades in the wilderness because of their disobedience they were struggling because of the consequence of their own bad choices yet God still was kind to them even during the period of their consequence and discipline. In fact, look at the preservation of God in the midst of really hard circumstances, wandering in a desert in a wilderness with millions of people. For 40 years, God sustained them. They lacked nothing. Their clothes never wore out. Their feet never swelled. Imagine that. Talk about a great set of shoes, a great set of clothes. 40 years, same outfit never wore out, never fell apart. God sustained it. They never lacked anything. They might not have had everything they wanted, but they never lacked anything. 
God made sure they had at least what they needed sufficiently, and he sustained them. God is a God who can sustain us. He can sustain us, even in the hardships and the difficult times. He has ways to sustain his people in incredible ways. Verse 22, and moreover, you gave them kingdoms and nations, divided them into districts, that has put them into the different territories when they entered the land. He says, they took possession of the land of Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and the land of Og of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven and brought them into the land which you had told their fathers to go in and possess. And so the people went in and possessed the land. You subdued them, he says, before the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hands with kings and the people of the land that they might do with them as they had wished. And they took strong cities and rich land and possessed the houses full of goods, cisterns, notice, already dug. They inherited cisterns that had been dug out of rock, and they didn't have to do any of the chiseling or digging. They just inherited these things. Vineyards and olive groves, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled, and they grew fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. So this speaks of how they just freely inherited the promised land when they ultimately went in under Joshua, defeating their enemies. God was giving them incredible victories in ways they should have never been able to succeed, but yet God was giving them victory, fighting their battles, giving them supernatural power to do above and beyond what they could in their own human resources or their own abilities. And they were inheriting things. He speaks of how they simply, as a gift, were inheriting cisterns and vineyards and olive groves and fruit trees. They didn't work for any of these things. They just arrived and God was giving them over to them as gifts. They inherited the land already prepped and prepared as they had victories, and these were the spoils of their war. And of course, the promised land is a picture, the inheritance of the promised land, of, of how we inherit the, the promised spiritual life. They inherited a land flowing with milk and honey and many blessings and gifts and things they never worked for, but God gave it to them through their victories. We inherit all the promises of God in the New Testament, many blessings and promises through the work and the victory of Jesus Christ. And we inherit so much because of the great work and victory that Christ has done. And we inherit freely by faith, by simply entering in through the work of the Spirit. Verse 26, nevertheless, again, nevertheless, they were, sad to see, disobedient and rebelled against you. They cast your law behind their backs, killed your prophets who testified against them to turn them to yourself. And they worked great provocation. So again, another phase of rebellion and disobedience, ignoring God's messengers. Therefore, you delivered them into the hand of their enemies who oppressed them in the time of their trouble. When they cried out to you, you heard from heaven and according to your abundant mercies, you gave them deliverers who saved them from the hand of their enemies. So much of the period of the book of Judges, they would rebel against God, disobey God's word. God, as a consequence, would give them over to their own choices. He would then let them become enslaved to these enemy kings who would then conquer the people. God would kind of take back his hand of blessing from his people. He'd take back his hand of protection. They'd be conquered by their enemies, struggle, and then they would cry out to the Lord in their brokenness. And God, every time when they'd cry out, would enter in and he'd bring in a, a judge, sort of a deliverer to come and rescue them because of his abundant mercies. He'd give them deliverers to set them free again and again. Again, God keeps being so kind 
despite their constant rebellion, even as he does in our lives, how many times we keep on regressing, rebelling, and God never forsakes us. He keeps responding to our cries and being kind and merciful again and again. Verse 28, but after they had rest, they again did evil before you. Therefore, you let them in the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried out to you, heard them from heaven. And many times, I have that underlined, many times you delivered them according to your mercies and testified against them that you might bring them back to your law. Notice God wanted to bring them back to the law, bring them back to living in accordance with his word because that's the right place to be living our lives in alignment with. Verse 29, and you testified against them, again, to bring them back to your law, yet, again, yet they acted proudly, did not heed your commandments, but sinned against your judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they shrugged their shoulders, stiffened their necks, and would not hear. Again, what a picture there of human arrogance and right. They shrugged their shoulders. It is kind of just a disrespectful defiance. Shrug their shoulders, whatever. Just picture someone lifting their shoulders like a little rebellious child, you know, or, or just somebody shrugging their shoulders, you know, to the cops, to some authority, just shrugging their shoulders to God, whatever. Stiffening their necks. And it says, notice, they would not hear. Not they could not hear. They were choosing to ignore what God was saying. They would not hear. They were making a conscious choice to disregard the voice of God in their life. Again, amazing. Kind of, we look at this and we realize, wow, how this reminds us of how we all can be like this, just so continuously prone to go back to being at times rebellious and disobedient, and how quick we can gravitate towards just dishonoring God again, and, and, and how prone we are to being inclined to our sinfulness again and again, to People of Israel kept doing this. Verse 30, yet for many years, notice, many years, you had patience with them and testified against them by your spirit in your prophets. So how did God speak? By the power of his Holy Spirit through his prophetic messengers. Again, prophecy is speaking forth a word for God, and God would raise up the prophets. Think of all the Old Testament prophets that we see, as well as even the books of Old Testament prophecy. God would raise up messengers to speak to his people, and by his Spirit, he would give them words from his heart, words that were messages from heaven, calling them to do what's right, to turn from what's wrong. Verse 30, though he testified by the Spirit in the prophets, yet he says they would not listen. Therefore, because they would not listen, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them nor forsake them, for you are God gracious and merciful. So this is what we refer to as the, the captivity. Is The people of God went into exile and captivity. God gave them over ultimately to the Babylonians, the Assyrians. And again, this wasn't God's heart, but in a sense, God was saying, if this is what you want, I'll give you over to what you want. You don't want what I want for your life. I'll let you have what you want for your life. And so God let them kind of experience the misery of their rejection of him and their own choices and their sinfulness. He let these consequences come upon them in discipline, trying to awaken them to the error of not listening to him. But he didn't forsake them. 
nor did he utterly consume them for years and years. Patience and patience, he says, you are gracious and merciful. Verse 32, now therefore our God, the great and mighty and awesome God who keeps covenant and mercy, do not let all the troubles seem small before you that have come upon us, on our kings and princes, priests and prophets, our fathers and all the people, for the days of the kings of Assyria until this day. However, you are just in all that has befallen us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. So again, in his prayer, acknowledging, God, everything you have done has been right. You have not done anything wrong in this process. We have done what is wrong in the relationship process again and again and again. But God, you are just in all that's befallen us. Anything we've suffered, any consequence that we're dealing with, any problems we're now facing, he says, we can't blame this on you. You've been just. We have been the ones who have done what is wrong, but you've remained faithful. We have done wickedly. Boy, this is a great reminder because so often as people, we can make bad choices and behave wrongly and rebel and don't listen to God. And then we face problems and consequences and struggle. And then we, well, how could God let this happen to me? And if God loved me and we want to blame shift things on God, when the reality is, is a lot of times we're the ones that we, we created our own mess. And God just faithfully allowed us to reap the consequences of what we've done. And yet we want to blame God. And so important to have wisdom to say, God, you've dealt faithfully. You've been just. You haven't done anything wrong. So whether it's personally, and I think this is true as well, just at times even nationally. You know, we, we, we create our own problems. We make our own messes. And yet we don't want to take responsibility for those things. And here the psalmist or the, the one praying, excuse me, is actually acknowledging God, you've dealt faithfully. We've done wickedly. Neither our kings or princes, our priests or fathers have kept your law. We, we, we've cast aside your word. We don't want to follow your word. Nor have we heeded your commandments or your testimonies, which you testified against them. We've turned away from your word, God. For they have not served you in their kingdom or in the many good things that you gave them or in the large and rich land which you set before them, nor did they turn from their wicked works. So he says, God... Uh, we had incredible opportunity. You gave us the Word of God. You gave us so many privileges. You gave us such opportunity to be a blessed people, to be a blessed nation, and we cast you behind our backs. We shrugged our shoulders. We said, we don't need your Word. We're going to do things our own way and became stubborn and rebellious in the sinful desires that they pursued. And he says, we haven't served you in all the many good things that you gave us in this large and rich land, and, and we've gone to wicked works instead. And now, therefore, verse 36, look how he concludes, here we are servants today. The idea literally is slaves. And the land that you gave our fathers to eat the fruit and its bounty, here we are servants in it. God, you gave us this land, and we're actually living in it now completely enslaved to other people. It says, Verse 37, and it yields much increase to the kings that you have set over us because of our sins, and they have dominion over our bodies and cattle at their pleasure, and we are in great distress. In other words, God, here we are. We should be blessed and prospering because of all the opportunity you've given to us through the 
the blessings you offer to us, but yet because of our choices and rebellious acts and ignoring you, ultimately we have enslaved ourselves. And now here we are living like slaves in the very land that we were supposed to be blessed and enjoying. Here we are, and the land is doing well, but someone else is reaping the benefits uh, because they've now taken control of us because we've weakened ourselves by our rejection of you. And he says, we're in great distress. And a, kind of a, a sad thing, recognizing their failure, despite how kind and faithful God had been year after year, generation after generation. Verse 38, he says, and because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders and Levites and our priests seal it. So notice how this concludes. God, though we have failed so greatly, and you were so patient, so merciful, you kept being so kind to us again and again and again and again, and we kept turning away again and again. Yet because of all this and the mess we've created for ourselves, notice they say, we're not going to quit. We're not just going to give up and become self-defeated and just... He says, no, we make a sure covenant. The idea is we're not going to quit. We need to recommit ourselves to you. We need a fresh commitment to you, God. And he says, we're going to write it out right now, the leaders, the priests, and we're going to sign our names to this commitment. The idea is we're going to make an oath, we're going to write it down, and we're going to make a commitment to you, God, because we need to return to the Lord. We need to get back to right relationship with you, God, and we're going to make that commitment and abide by it. We're going to sign our names to it. You know, sometimes I think we underestimate the value sometimes of making commitments to God. We make commitments to a lot of other things. Sometimes it's necessary to humble ourselves and when the power of the Holy Spirit's at work to say, God, I'm serious and I'm going to make a commitment to you, God. A serious commitment. We are recommitting ourselves to you, and we're going to be serious about following through with that. Let's pray, and let's ask God to do that in our very lives.